1: It's been three and a half years since the first cases of a novel coronavirus emerged in the city of Wuhan in central China.
2: Dr. Li Wenliang went from treating patients to becoming one. The 34-year-old ophthalmologist diagnosed Saturday with the Wuhan coronavirus, dying less than a week... Of
1: course, we all know how that story unfolded.
2: The
3: World Health Organization has just released a report estimating that 15 million deaths occurred globally due to the pandemic around triple the current estimates.
1: The Economist now predicts that 24 million people have died from the disease. From the earliest days of the pandemic, the question of exactly how the SARS-CoV-2 virus had ended up in humans loomed large in many people's minds. The usual way that a new human pathogen emerges is a natural process called spillover, an animal virus that ends up infecting a person, who then goes on to infect other people. Many human diseases, from smallpox to Ebola to HIV, have appeared in this way. In the case of SARS-CoV-2, the suspicion initially fell on bats, which carry a huge number of viruses. From bats went the thinking, the SARS-CoV-2 virus, or something very close to it, probably spread into another species before spilling over into humans at the Huanan seafood market in Wuhan. But technically speaking, spillover like this is not the only way that a novel virus could end up causing an outbreak.
0: Have you seen anything at this point that gives you a high degree of confidence that the Wuhan Institute of Virology was the origin of this virus? Yes, I have.
1: Yes, I have. The idea of a leak from a laboratory was widely regarded during the pandemic as a wild conspiracy theory, a way to just cast blame for the devastating pandemic onto China. But containment issues can crop up even in the best laboratories, inadvertent leaks of hazardous biological materials including viruses are not unheard of add to that that the wuhan institute of virology was known to be collecting and experimenting with coronaviruses in one of their labs that set the stage for a huge bitter and ongoing fight
2: Why are there rumours? Because the Institute of Virology and P4 Laboratory are in Wuhan. People can't help but make associations, which I think is understandable. But it's bad when some are deliberately trying to mislead people.
1: Deciding who's right is not trivial. Tracking the evolution and transmission of any virus is complicated. Mostly the detective work requires speed and transparency. And Chinese officials have not been cooperative on that front. The latest twist in this story comes from the vast intelligence networks of the American government. The country will soon declassify all of its intelligence on what it knows and what it doesn't about the origins of the virus. It's unlikely that even that will contain any smoking guns on where the virus came from and how it first spread into people. So where does all of that leave the scientific question of the origins of the pandemic? Will we, can we ever truly know? Hello and welcome to Babbage from The Economist. I'm Alok Jha, The Economist's science and technology editor. Today we'll explore the various hypotheses that underpin what should be a scientific question, but which has instead turned into a geopolitical battle. How can we use science rather than accusations and circumstantial evidence to uncover the true origin of COVID-19? Joining me for today's show is Natasha Loder, The Economist's health editor, who's been following this story since day one. Hi, Natasha. Hello, Alok. Now, We were supposed to be getting some information from America's Director of National Intelligence on what they think about the origins of SARS-CoV-2. We haven't got the information yet, but just give us some background. What is the information we're expecting?
3: Well, the intelligence agencies in the US government have been looking into the origin for some time, and much of the findings that they have uncovered have been kept secret. Congress passed a bill about 90 days ago, which the president signed, and asked agencies to declassify their work on the origins, as much of it as they could. And particularly, they were seeking information about any role that a virology institute had in the origin of the outbreak. That information has not yet come. The deadline for releasing it has passed. It is still expected to arrive. The assumption is that it's been delayed because of geopolitical reasons. There's been a visit by the Secretary of State to China seeking to sort of defuse tensions between the two superpowers and that perhaps this would not be the best time for the information about the outbreak to be released.
1: In the intelligence gatherings, we don't know what they've found, so let's not speculate too much, but what would you be looking out for in what they've said?
3: What I'm looking out for is any firm evidence that they've uncovered about the origin of the virus either way. There's been a lot of speculation, in fact some names have been circulating in the media, of virologists who work at the Institute saying that they got sick in the initial outbreak time the issue with that sort of information is that when you say researchers at an institute of virology got sick it's like well what did they get sick with just because they went to hospital it doesn't mean they had the coronavirus influenza was pretty common at the time and actually people use hospitals much more as primary care Um, you don't have to be sick to go to a hospital in china so you're looking for real diagnostic evidence that these Researchers had COVID, that would be very interesting, as would a date of their sickness. Absent that, you might be looking for intelligence that would indicate what the Chinese were thinking and doing in the period of the initial outbreak, that might tell you either way.
1: All right, well, let's put the intelligence or what might be in it to one side for a moment and go back to the end of 2019 and the beginning of 2020, when the coronavirus was emerging. And the sort of scientific thinking at the time was that this was another spillover event. you know, In other words, an animal virus that had gone into humans. Talk me through why scientists thought that at first and what that means.
3: Well, when the new pneumonia was first picked up in December of 2019 in the city of Wuhan in China, many of the early cases were tied to the market in some way. And so it was assumed that it would have been connected to the sale of animals there. It looked a lot like SARS did when it broke out in 2003, which was connected to the sale of animals. Animals are frequently sources of new diseases in humans. And so the fact that a lot of these early cases were tied to the market seemed pretty indicative of what had gone on.
1: Now, one of the animals that is often suspected in spillover events like this is the bat. I mean, bats are mammals. They harbour huge numbers of viruses, including coronaviruses. And it was suspected early on that bats might have been the source for this coronavirus that ended up in humans, but not directly, right? It would have had to go potentially through another species to do that.
3: Yeah, I mean, the range of the bats that harbour the sort of coronaviruses that we're talking about are hundreds and hundreds of miles away in the south of the country in an area called Hunan. And the difficulty is understanding how a virus which probably originated from that region, or at least an ancestral virus, would get to a city like Wuhan. What often happens in the case of coronaviruses is they spill through an intermediate animal. That's how MERS emerges in humans. It comes from camels. And there are a whole bunch of other examples. And so when we're looking for the animals that might be intermediary species, one of the things you can do is look at the animals that are currently infected by SARS-CoV-2 and that are at the market. And so the animals that people are focusing on now are things like raccoon dogs, badgers, mink, and civet cats. But it is also possible that other animals were sold at the market that we just don't know about. There has been a lot of opacity. I would just say there has been a cover-up, certainly, of what animals were sold at that market. So we don't have complete information. You know, Bats could have even been sold at the market.
1: But of course, there are other ways that viruses could get into human populations. And one of those was raised quite early on, which is the idea of a laboratory working on novel coronaviruses collected from the wild, and that this coronavirus might have somehow leaked out into the human population. Talk to me about that. Where does that theory come from?
3: Well, first of all, there are actually a range of what are now called research-related theories to do with the emergence of SARS-CoV-2. The most common speculation is simply that it came from people working on the genetic engineering of viruses at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. And speculation about this has circulated really since the start of the pandemic, probably because the Institute is a world-leading centre for coronavirus research. But another way that the virus could have been released in Wuhan through a research-related accident would have been through scientists who were just traveling to these remote regions to collect samples of bat viruses and coming back into the city. And that, you know is potentially another interface between these viruses a long way away and the city of Wuhan.
1: Just strip it down to basics, Natasha. What do we actually know? What's the, What does the reliable research show was going on in Wuhan in 2019, 2020, from which we can then build other theories?
3: Before I answer that, I'd just say that I don't think we can conclude on this programme which of these two theories is more likely than the other. What we can say, though, is what the most authoritative scientific work published on the subject is, and that suggests quite strongly that the virus did originate at the market. They base this conclusion on three lines of evidence. One is the geography, the fact that the early cases are centred around the market. The second one is the sale of animals that can actually be infected with SARS-CoV-2 that were sold at this market. And the third one is about the evolutionary family tree of the viruses that were sampled, which point to there having been two spillovers within about a week of each other something that is hard to explain in any other situation other than a market origin i would say that there are some elements of it that are contested that may leave some wiggle room for a laboratory origin but that's the state of the argument as it is at the moment And to cut through the noise, I spoke to James Wood, an epidemiologist at the University of Cambridge, about how you do a scientific investigation to hunt for where a virus comes from.
2: What we're dealing with in terms of our investigation of the origins of the pandemic are probabilities, not certainties. The problem with these retrospective investigations is that you rarely will find a smoking gun with someone's fingerprints on it. What you have to do, I think, is look at this in terms of the balance of probabilities and accept that there will be uncertainty with any answer that you come up with.
3: Take me through the process of hunting for the origins of a new virus in humans.
2: So if you have a new infection in humans, it will be identified as new by comparing it to all other known infections that exist in in humans. That identification increasingly is done not entirely, but to a very great extent based on the genetic code that characterises viruses, which then can be compared to a huge international resource where the genetic sequences of all viruses are held in databases to see how similar or different it is. So assuming that you have done that work and found your virus to be sufficiently different from anything else, then the next question that obviously arises is where did it come from? And there are two very obvious answers to that. The first is that it's been in humans and we've just never found it before. And the second is that it is a new virus that has come probably from another animal. And so you would then look very carefully to see where the virus was found and then start working very closely with those on the ground, on both the human and animal side, to think about the contacts And exposures of the early cases of this virus. And uh, once you've identified some of those close contacts or likely transmission routes, then you can start thinking about either going to sample more human populations or other animal populations that are in the area that the virus has emerged. So with
3: SARS-CoV-2, you have a collection of viruses from a wet market. What sorts of techniques have been used to work out more information about this outbreak?
2: So that's a really interesting question, and I think that it's worthwhile splitting the investigations into two separate parts. The first is where you will go back and look at all records, be they medical or public or media or social media records, relating to people getting ill with the same signs of disease that you're interested in, where they were when they got ill, and Trying to find out as much about those people as you can. So, in the case of SARS CoV 2, they were pretty much all focused in one particular part of Wuhan City in China. If you look at SARS CoV 1, those first cases in China came from people over a long period who had been in contact with palm civets that were being widely traded across southern China and may have come from the farms where they were being bred. And that was seeding infection over many months into the human population. So then in the case of an emerging epidemic such as that in Wuhan in in December 2019 or into January 2020, then it's really important to go into the areas where the infection appears to be emerging and start sampling from both people, animals and the environment to see what you can find there.
3: And with the Wuhan market, unfortunately, we don't have samples from animals. We just have environmental swabs of surfaces. And we have genetic sequences of people who got sick in December of that year. That's allowed us, hasn't it, to do something called a phylogenetic analysis and look at the emergence time of the virus. Can you tell us a little bit about how that works?
2: That's absolutely correct. So, Effectively, these are family trees for viruses. And so just as you can sequence us and see if we're siblings or first cousins or or parents and so on, you can do something very similar using this phylogenetic approach with viruses. And that has been done for the samples collected from the Wuhan market. So when you go and sample a surface in something like a market, you will find that there will be a lot of sequence data from humans coming from things like shed skin, just like a forensic criminal investigation. You can do the same thing from different animal species. So you can use that approach to characterise the animal species that have been there at some point in time.
3: And then um, with regards to this family tree, if you like, of viruses, because they mutate at a sort of steady rate or you can work out what the mutational rate is. You can also calculate when the virus is likely to have emerged. Is that right?
2: That's absolutely correct. Yes, so as part of this family tree dating, you can see how far apart they are. Now, for us, when we're looking at family trees, we're talking about parents and their children or grandparents and so on. For a virus where there's a more continuous divergence from the parent, where they're gradually mutating away from what they started from. As you say, if you do enough sequencing, you can work out the speed at which that virus is mutating. And then you can look at two separate sequences and tell how far apart they are in time terms. And that can then allow you to date within, in the case of a very well sampled situation, potentially give you an estimate within a few weeks or months of when things first emerged.
3: So with SARS-CoV-2... I think there's quite a broad acceptance that the phylogenetic data points to a mid-November origin for the virus. I don't think that is quite so controversial. But also what falls out of the analyses is that there were at least two lineages of virus. In other words, two jumps from an animal into a human. That has been a little bit more controversial. I wonder where you sit on that and whether you feel that the data is compelling on the at least two jumps idea.
2: I think it's very clear that there were two lineages of virus that were circulating in December in Wuhan. And they're quite distinct from each other, but they are the same virus at the same time. So it's like brothers and sisters, as it were. You know that the brother is not the sister when you sequence it. Where it gets more complicated is what people then think it means. My personal interpretation of that is, I think it's pretty clear that this virus has emerged from an animal species or animal populations. Now, when you have an animal that is infected with a virus over time, just as we've seen different lineages of SARS-CoV-2 emerge over the three or four years that the pandemic has been circulated around the world, when you get the same things occurring within animal populations. And so, If you have a very heavily infected population of animals exposing a human population, you do not expect just one virus to jump over. You readily expect several of the same viruses all to spill over at the same time. And I think that the most likely explanation is that a heavily infected population was in contact with humans in Wuhan and it spilled over into humans on more than one occasion, which is why you've ended up with two virus families as it were circulating. And then the one that took off better because it evidently had some transmission advantages compared to the other one is the one that that then developed into the sort of prototype SARS-CoV-2 that then caused the, the global pandemic that we saw spreading so much in 2020.
3: What sort of evidence might we find that would answer this one way or the other?
2: Well, if you're looking at the time and you have unfettered, unlimited access to sampling everything. You go and sample everything and you go, including back to the sources of where these animals that were being traded in Wuhan are coming from. And you do that in a timely way and you go on looking until you find the source of this. Unfortunately, three, four years later, all of the trails will have gone cold. And so that's where I think that we've got to be very circumspect about thinking that we are ever going to know with any degree of confidence where this actual virus came from.
3: Is there a risk that in this whole story over the last two, three years, you know, virologists who've poured their life work into better understanding viruses have really come out of this looking like villains rather than heroes?
2: I think that the politicisation of the debate around the origins of this virus and how it transmits is really most unfortunate, and it doesn't help good science. And very importantly, I don't think it helps our ability to try and prevent these things happening in the future. One element that I do come back to time and time again is to think about what the consequences of drawing the wrong conclusions are in terms of prevention of future epidemics. So if we just say it was the scientists, say, leaked it from the lab, then that means that we tighten up on lab security and introduce whatever regulations society sees fit to regulate this kind of work going on. If we've got that wrong, though, and the origin was the market, then we need to look very carefully at the drivers of spillovers from wild animals into humans. And I'm very concerned that we're not doing enough to prevent further spillovers happening. And I feel that we should be thinking very carefully about trying to stop international trade of wild animals that are alive, which is so risky. There are so many stories about live animals carrying virus into other populations. There's a lot we can do about that. The other thing that I think we need to, to think about is, what is it that makes it likely for something like a bat virus to get into other populations? And there's increasing evidence that these transmission events will occur in areas of biodiversity loss. And I think that this is a global crisis as important as the global climate crisis. Unless we start trying to do something more about biodiversity loss, we're going to see more and more of these pandemics emerging, probably with greater and greater severity. But that is not at the moment being actioned sufficiently politically in any country at all, I don't think.
3: Thank you so much, James.
2: Uh, Natasha, it's been fascinating talking to you. Thank you very much.
1: we'll be back with Natasha in just a moment to explore further the lab leak side of the investigation. But first, we've got a favour to ask. If you've filled in one of our listener surveys before, thank you very much. All of this data is helping us to make all of the podcasts from The Economist as satisfying as possible. This week, we're launching a new follow-up survey to continue this work. Please do take a few minutes to let us know what you think of all of our shows. Just go to economist.com slash podcast survey. The link is in the show notes. Thank you once again. Coming up, even if COVID-19 didn't come from a lab, the next pandemic might. So what lessons can we learn now to ensure that that doesn't happen?
2: Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.
1: Today on Babbage, we're looking at the investigations into the origins of COVID-19. Whether or not the pandemic did come from a lab, the story of COVID-19 has undeniably emphasised the importance of biosafety and biosecurity, especially in research settings. I'm back now with Natasha Loder, the Economist's health editor. Now, Natasha, we've talked about the zoonotic transfer idea, the sort of natural origins of COVID so far. Talk me through the lab leak hypothesis. What do people mean when they say that?
3: Well, the lab leak hypothesis is a collection of ideas centered around the virology work that was being undertaken in the city of Wuhan. There is the Wuhan Institute of Virology, but there's also a Wuhan Centers for Disease Control, which is located quite close to the Huanan market. One idea is that they were engineering
1: viruses. Just just explain, Natasha, why a virus institute would be genetically engineering viruses. What's the purpose of that?
3: Well, that's been a huge and interesting debate. There are lots of reasons that you would tinker with viruses. Good ones might be to create vaccines. Interesting ones would be because you want to find out which viruses are risky in terms of Potential emergence in humans. And so the idea being that you mix and match bits of coronaviruses that might mix and match naturally in nature, and then you might give this experimentally to animals and see how many of them die, and then work out how pathogenic the virus is, for example. Or even developing some kind of bioweapon on the military side of things, some kind of classified work. And then during the research work, there was some kind of mishandling or accidental release, which actually is something more common than you might imagine. And also there's this issue that over the last few years, it's become apparent that some of the work that was being conducted at the Institute was done at biosafety levels, which are not thought to be sufficiently
1: stringent. A lot of the controversy that people have been talking about mention the terms gain-of-function research. Just talk to me about what that is. Well,
3: this is where you engineer a virus and it becomes more dangerous, more pathogenic to the research animals that you're testing it on. And when you engineer in these sorts of properties, it's known as gain-of-function research. That term, though, is used quite widely. Some use it broadly to mean any change in the function of a virus. But this sort of research has certainly now become a lot more controversial
1: and we talk about these ideas of genetically engineering viruses as if we're sure they're happening do we know that they're happening yeah, I mean, there
3: are lots of published papers showing that the Institute of Virology was genetically engineering viruses. They were engaged in a lot of coronavirus research. In fact, labs around the world are doing coronavirus research. Obviously, if there was you know secret military work, we've no way of knowing. And that's where perhaps some of this becomes a little bit more conspiratorial, although I hesitate to use the word conspiracy theory, but it is conceivable that there was undisclosed work going on or even unpublished work. I mean, you have to remember that scientists don't publish things immediately. It may be they were working on genetic engineering project that hadn't been published with viruses that hadn't been yet disclosed. So these are things that we can't know.
1: How could we tell if we found a virus that it might have been engineered?
3: Well, if the virus has been engineered a particular way and has left marks on it of the sort of cutting and pasting, then yes, you can. But it's also possible to engineer viruses invisibly. So this has left a sort of huge uncertainty in the minds of researchers. Initially, some people looked at SARS-CoV-2 and said, this looks like it's been engineered. There is a particular site called the furin cleavage site that seemed to be unusual that allows this particular virus to be much more infectious and transmissible
1: in humans. And you don't normally see that in these viruses?
3: Well, it's one of the curiosities about SARS-CoV-2. It has this sequence and all of its close relatives have nothing of the kind, and so it sort of sticks out like a sore thumb. But what we also know about these viruses is they chop and change genetic material between each other quite frequently. So it's quite easy to imagine that it could have acquired this site in many ways. So it's not definitive evidence of genetic engineering. But we really don't know what happened in the lab. There's been a lack of transparency about the Institute and its practices there. That's actually strangely common in laboratories around the world, as it turns out. The lack of clarity means that we can't get good answers to what was really going on there prior to the outbreak. And that's something that perhaps intelligence services could shed more light on. But with laboratories like this being built all around the world, lab safety is just such a crucial issue. And that's why I spoke to Alison Young. She's an investigative reporter and she's recently written a book called Pandora's Gamble, which is about laboratory leaks.
0: Lab accidents happen very frequently. The reality is, is that human beings make mistakes. So it's everything from dropping and spilling various cultures to being bitten by infectious animals, to needle sticks, to malfunctions of safety equipment. Not all of those accidents, however, result in infections. But one of the biggest issues in this area is there is nobody who is tracking how often laboratory accidents occur I have spent more than 15 years at this point investigating laboratory accidents, and getting that information is incredibly difficult. You face open records fights for the information that is public. And there has been a long history of laboratories that when accidents occur, that information is kept secret.
3: What's motivating that secrecy?
0: I think all of us understand that when we make mistakes, you don't want the embarrassment. You don't want potentially something bad to happen to you or your lab as a result of some sort of a safety breach. And so that is part of it. But part of it also is that there has been a culture and an acceptance from regulatory agencies that this information should be kept secret and treated as information that only those within the scientific community know about.
3: We know that labs have released pathogens and have even caused deaths, both of researchers and people who they know or are related to. But have they ever actually caused an outbreak, such as the pandemic that we have just been through?
0: There have been lab accidents and research-related incidents that have caused outbreaks. One of them is the 1977 influenza that swept the entire globe, That particular virus, when scientists looked at it closely, looked as if it had almost been frozen in time from a strain that had circulated decades earlier. And there is general acceptance that that particular virus, it's coming back out to infect humans was not something that was fully from nature, that it either came from some sort of a laboratory accident where it had been frozen over time, or that it was some sort of a vaccine trial that went badly.
3: And SARS has been released from laboratories accidentally as well. Correct. The first SARS virus, after
0: that outbreak was brought under control through intensive public health measures, that SARS virus escaped from labs at least four times in multiple countries, threatening to reignite that epidemic all over again.
3: Your reporting work has focused on lab safety in America, which you would expect to have relatively good management. What regulations and protocols have been put in place there? So in the United
0: States, labs have a great authority and responsibility to assess the risks of the experiments they're doing and put safety practices in place. There is limited regulation in the sense of mandatory rules, inspection, and authorities. And that only covers a subset of labs that work with certain pathogens. They might be things like anthrax and Ebola, may have potential bioterrorism consequences. But not all dangerous pathogens are covered by those regulations. And one of the challenges with the secrecy in this area is that not only does the public not know what accidents are occurring or how safe or unsafe any given lab is, we also don't have a good way of seeing how effective or ineffective the regulatory agency is itself.
3: How do you think lab research needs to be better regulated and policed?
0: The experts that I've interviewed over the years have put forth a number of recommendations, but many of them have not ever been implemented. One of them is that at least in the United States, there has been a call for a single federal entity to oversee lab safety and that this entity needs to be independent of the research that's going on. In the United States and in some other countries, the entities that are charged with overseeing lab safety often are also conducting their own research and or funding the research of the labs that are doing the research. And all of those are potential conflicts of interest. Having independence and having a public voice. Another recommendation is for transparency. And that is something that the debate over COVID and everything that this world has been through, the issue of trust in science, has been shaken. And one of the remedies is transparency. And it's something in this area that's been lacking.
3: Let's finish off by talking about SARS-CoV-2. Will we ever know what happened?
0: I hope we will know. In my book, I go into an incident that occurred in the former Soviet Union, with an anthrax outbreak many years ago. And one of the things that is instructive about that particular outbreak is that the scientists and the government institutions initially said that it was basically a food poisoning incident of anthrax-tainted meat. But ultimately, about 15 years later, because of changing politics and people coming forward with evidence that they had kept away from being confiscated by the KGB, It ultimately was learned that that was, in fact, an anthrax lab accident. So we don't know whether this was nature or lab at this point, but the world needs to know that answer, and hopefully we will get it eventually.
3: Is it too late to find the answers for COVID-19?
0: I hope that it's not too late. I do believe that given time, more information may surface on either of these hypotheses. The idea that it could have come from a lab accident should never have been treated as a conspiracy theory. This was something that should have been looked into from the beginning, given the set of circumstances. And unfortunately, the term conspiracy theory got weaponized and it shut down some important legwork that should have been done from the start.
3: Do people ever ask you which one you think it's more likely to have come from? And what do you answer? People ask me that all the time, and I don't know.
0: And I think that given the lack of data, it's very hard to know. There has been such a shutdown of information, and the politics over all of this have made it difficult to have the kind of information that I think all of us wish was out there.
3: I get asked all the time, actually. (laughs) I say the same thing now. I know. I I mean, I don't don't know. know. (laughs) I mean, gosh, if I knew, that would be
0: awesome. But (laughs) I don't know.
3: (laughs) Alison, thank you so
0: much for your time. Natasha, this was great. Thank you for having me on.
1: Thanks, Natasha. That was really interesting. Now, just following up on what Alison was saying, to what extent do you think that the investigations into the origins of the pandemic will do anything to change the ways that labs are regulated and kept safe in future?
3: Well, they have to. We're entering an era of synthetic biology. We've got high-risk labs being built all around the world, some of which we know very little about. And the oversight of these labs in different countries is very fragmented. And as we've heard, there's a great lack of transparency. We have to sort this out. One of the lessons we need to learn from this is that even if COVID-19 did not come from the Wuhan Institute of Virology, it very easily could have done. and We need to take that lesson on board. It's such an important message.
1: Now, one of the other ways to make sure that pandemics and and outbreaks don't happen in the future is of course to limit the human interactions with wild animals as well especially in places like wet markets where we know spillovers have happened before. Do you think that there might be some regulation or thinking about that uh, and the kinds of things that James mentioned earlier?
3: Lots of people are thinking about this problem it's a really really difficult one to solve. The sale of wild animals is really big business they've struggled over many years to make it safe And this is, I think, one of the reasons why this debate about the origin of COVID has become quite polarised, is that the two sides of this are equally convinced that the lesson that needs to be drawn from this episode is their lesson. That it's the risk of viruses spilling over from wildlife on the one hand, or the risk of research work in the laboratory. And we need to kind of step back from that and just basically say, look, both of these things are equally and definitively very important and need to be solved for a safer future.
1: Well, I mean, let's think about the future then. Is there any hope that the investigation into the origins of SARS-CoV-2 will become a scientific endeavour? I mean, it normally is, isn't it, to find the origins of viruses? You've alluded to the fact that this has become much more political. Is it something that the world will come to solve at some point, do you think?
3: The problem is there's been so much secrecy and so many cover-ups related to the early origin of this virus that information from the intelligence services has become very salient to this discussion. It's not a situation that one would choose to find oneself in. What we know is that science can winkle out more information over time, whether that will lead to a definitive answer either way. Who knows? I hope so, but I just don't know.
1: Well, I look forward to your expose of all this in your book in about decades' time. I think that uh, that's when we'll know, surely. That sounds like Uh, a
3: thankless task.
1: (laughs) (laughs) all, All the best things are thankless, Natasha, and you should take this on for the world. Well, Natasha, thank you very much for taking us through all that again. Thank you so much. Our thanks to James Wood, Alison Young and The Economist, Natasha Loda. And thank you for listening to Babbage. You can continue to follow and understand this story better by reading Natasha's excellent journalism in The Economist. We'll explain all you need to know once the long-awaited American intelligence reports do come out or you can dive into our archive to follow the ins and outs of this ongoing investigation over the past few years. If you're not yet a subscriber to The Economist, why not take out a trial subscription? We're currently offering one month of digital content for free at economist.com slash podcast offer. Don't miss out. If you're already a subscriber, thank you very much. And please do keep reading. That's all from us this week. Babbage is produced by Jason Hoskin, with mixing and sound design by Nico Rofast. The executive producer is Marguerite Howell. I'm Alok Jha, and in London, this is The Economist.
2: How can companies get value from virtual worlds and digital twins? Register now for Economist Impact's Enterprise Metaverse Summit, taking place next week, June 28th and 29th in London, and virtual, of course. You'll learn about the opportunities to power business with immersive experiences. And as a Babbage listener, enjoy 20% off with the code ECON20. So sign up now at enterprisemetaverse